Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom. This is Dreaming in Color. Ashindi Maxson is a truly brilliant mind whose genius has been instrumental in tackling everything from climate change to democracy reform to racial equity and social justice. She is the co-founder and former executive director of the Donors of Color Network, a cross-racial community of donors of color that offers a philanthropic and political home for high net worth donors of color committed to building power for people of color. Prior to this role, she worked as an independent strategist and donor advisor, helping organizations such as the Ford Foundation and the Women Donors Network. She has served as the National Policy Director of the NAACP, the National Director of Political Partnerships for the Service Employees International Union, and the Director of Research and Special Projects for the Democracy Alliance. To boot, she was at different points a school principal, a bilingual Spanish teacher for fourth and fifth grade students, and a Fulbright Scholar researching race consciousness in young children in the Dominican Republic. She graduated with her bachelor's degree from Vassar and her master's in public policy from UC Berkeley and now serves on the boards of the Texas Organizing Project, Way to Win, and Vocal USA. She's at the vanguard of the fight to save our democracy, protect our communities, and preserve our planet. And today she joins us for a conversation. Ashendi dear, it's so good Darren. to see you. So good to chat with you. Thank you for making time. Always a pleasure. I'm going to kick it off by throwing it to you. Please give us an invocation. All right. My early thoughts are one from the random Twitterverse. You are alive at just the right moment to change everything. And a second. I mean, you can't spell anything I think about with that sorry alphabet you have left over from yesterday. And that is the poet Eve Ewing. Oh, wow. These are my intro thoughts. Those are both wonderful thoughts and great openings. And well, both, they hit really well. I mean, that's a double hitter there. That's perfect. Thank you. So I'll say ashi to that. And I want to kick it off by offering you, you know, I have all these questions on, you know, what motivates you? All these things there. But one of the things that really jumps in mind for me is that just to offer you a compliment in starting, you have just a radical graciousness that makes chatting with you just absolutely wonderful. And I'm sure working with you as well. And I could ask a painfully sophisticated question about where that graciousness comes from, from a, a family perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a, a rearing perspective. But I'll just ask you in short, <laughs> in the way of Black Twitter, girl, where'd you get that? That radical oh. graciousness, <laughs> please do share, say more. That is so lovely. I really appreciate it. I really do. I fool people because I definitely think I come off as very warm and I try to be, there's a lot of steel underneath it, which surprises people. So the comment you made about when you, when I'm working with somebody, but the graciousness, I think honestly, it's studying Buddhism. I've been a student of Buddhism for 25 years and the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh in particular, who just passed. And I think it really is that like the study of oneness that, you know, we all inter are and that we depend and interdepend on one another and nothing is separate from you. And I think if you approach the world in that way, people feel it. You feel that I know that I need you to be in this world and I appreciate that. No, thank you. I appreciate it as well. And that oneness is real. And I, I also want to just pull on that. I mean, black girl out here doing Buddhism. I mean, come on now. Where, how'd you tell us a little bit more about that? How'd you get into that? I did not expect to start. It came 
from, at some point, I lived in the Dominican Republic, right, out of college. I did a Fulbright year, and it was a lonely time. Like, it was a, you know, I was alone a lot. And when I was doing the work, it was in sugarcane plantations with Haitian Dominicans, really harsh conditions, like the worst human experiences to see what people were living through, like mothers who had lost their children. And I mean, essentially, forced slavery, people starving, (laughs) like, I mean, it just seeing the worst of conditions. And during that time, really in my alone time, did a, a religious survey. Like just, I really started reading everything I could about all different religions, Islam, more of Christianity, Judaism, just everything. And the part, the the book that I picked up that sort of spoke to me and made sense of the world in the best way was Pieces Every Step by Thich Nhat Hanh. And specifically, I think what resonated for me is that Thich Nhat Hanh is a student of war, that he came out of huge conflict, huge trauma, huge suffering, and offered this path that was really about how do you interpret all of that suffering and be a part of it, not remove yourself from it, but be a part of it and have a path that's peaceful. And so I think it was in doing that survey that that was the, um, I think it was specifically finding the teacher who came from the path of engaged Buddhism and engaged activism uh, that spoke to me. And I've met a number of Black folks along the way who had a very similar experience of like, they needed a religion that, or a spiritual understanding of the world that both was spiritual, like that wasn't a rejection of organized religion, but that also was speaking to our experiences and a path out of them. And, you know, Buddhism is about transforming suffering. Yes. And, you know, I was joking, Black Buddhism, I I know quite a few, right? It it is definitely a thing. (laughs) But it is rare. We are rare people to have met quite a few Black Buddhists. (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Not so much in California, because California has got everything. But yeah, I hear you loud and clear. No, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate this whole idea of recognizing the spirituality piece and trying to find something that still doesn't over-intellectualize it all, but also gives you what you need from a healing perspective. And I feel very lucky in that I feel like my Christian upbringing was one of Black liberation, which is rare, I realize now. But I, I definitely appreciate the, the need to find something that gives you that centering and that peace. And I'm going to do a, a hard transition, but still keeping with the same theme of healing to some degree and the self-healing. And as I look over your wonderful career, if you will, you've been engaged in a lot of practices and, and movements that are all about healing to some degree. And so your ability to really look at a broken world and find some healing in that and the power that comes with that. And I would love just for you to start talking or start the conversation talking about your time in politics and those early years and what you learned there and how in some ways that may have shaped where you went or how you thought about power in the world. That's a lot. Yes. Okay. I'm happy to do that. (laughs) So, you know, my sort of story of how I stumbled into what I do, which largely has been sort of at the intersection of politics philanthropy, democracy, and race. (laughs) And somehow I've managed to be like playing at that intersection for about the last 15 years. But where I actually started was in education. And that came out of my early experience going to sort of low-income Title I schools and then getting a scholarship to a private all-girls school in Columbus. And suddenly I was in this school where like I was being challenged for the first time. I had no idea what education was supposed to look like. Like, I didn't know it was supposed to be challenging. (laughs) I didn't even know that the teacher was supposed to stay in the class the whole time. Like that was different than what I had seen. And then I read Jonathan Kuzel's Savage Inequalities, which made sense to me of why the first schools that I went to 
less than 50% of people were going to graduate. No one was going out of school to college. But at this private school where I got the scholarship, 100% of people go to college and like always have. And obviously there are huge racial disparities in those two experiences. And Savage Inequalities explained how that was structured, how it was a choice to structure something like that into how we do funding of schools and into tax codes. And it changed dramatically like my understanding of like the systems that I was born into and what was affecting my reality and my family's. And so initially I thought the path through that was education. And so I was a teacher. I was a really happy fourth and fifth grade Spanish bilingual teacher in East Oakland. Um, And I loved doing it, but I realized that the system that I was feeding my kids into was just inherently broken and it didn't really kind of matter like how good of a teacher I was for those two years because I was still sending them into a really broken system. And as long as I stayed in education, I never found the angle by which I was like, if you pull this lever, you fix education. <laughs> but when I fell backwards into politics, I was like, oh, these are the levers. Like the levers are here by which you change all kinds of things. And the lived experience of our communities is missing in these rooms. Like the people who actually believe that the people who clean houses, their kids deserve the same education as, you know, <laughs> the people who ride on yachts in the summer. Those people need to have power. And so really my career has been about about building power for people who haven't had it or creating paths of access. And a lot of it has had to do with, you know, being in philanthropy where the work that gets done is the work that gets resourced. And so making sure that folks who might not otherwise have a path to resources can do that. So, you know, we're not empowering people. We're just giving people the resources to do what they were always capable of doing. I love that story. And particularly, I love this this concept of, uh, as you think about this, you know, the falseness of empowering people, like the people have always had the power. It's just how do you give them the space to act out on their power? Or stop actively oppressing them. <laughs> stop how about actively that? keeping about them Literally yes. take your foot off my neck. Is that an option, right? I do think, you know, one of the things I would love for you to chat a little bit about or just share with us is as you think about the power and opportunity and the genius that exists already in those communities. I feel like looking over your career and all the things you've done, you've, you've had the sixth sense, if you will, as it relates to both understanding the most critical issues that we need to be navigating, but also bringing the right people to those conversations in a way that unleashes a whole set of potential. And I was this, I mean, not 100% aligned, but I'm reminded of in my neighborhood in New Orleans, we had Miss Mary, who was like, you know, I, I, used, I think of her now, I didn't think of her then, but she was like basically the, the neighborhood Elaine Locke, right? And so this woman, I don't think this woman graduated from middle school, maybe, but she was the one that everybody talked to about everything, right? Like she was, the first, I remember talking with her about my college decisions or about my first internship. And she was kind of, the, in some ways, a broker that understood your talent, understood your skills, understood your importance more than you did and more than the world did and was able to plug you in in a way that made sense. And so I think of you as a bit of an Alain Locke within the philanthropic world. And I would love for you to talk about as you you know look at the various issues, look at the various people, what's that sixth sense that gives you a sense of where we should be playing or where we should be investing or who should be in those conversations? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> A lot of it is just having imagination about our communities, right? Like, and having the lived experience of being in, you know, multiple marginalized groups as a woman, as a Black person, having grown up in low-income schools, like all of these identities give me a sense of when there is a threat on the horizon, I'm tuned into it in a really different way than most people in philanthropy who haven't experienced those threats. And so I think when I first got into philanthropy about 15 years ago, everyone I met for the most part 
well, one was almost all white, like the, you know, the rooms that I was in because I was kind of immediately because of a mentor of mine kind of immediately was working in high net worth philanthropy. And I remember like people kept asking me, like, like everyone asked me the same question when I started my, this first job, which was a, a place called the Democracy Alliance, which, you know, lots of very large donors working there. But when I first showed up in the office, the question I kept getting asked was, how did you get here? Like people really were mystified at how I had suddenly shown up in this space because I looked so out of place right away. And then once I realized what kinds of decisions were happening in these rooms where people had no imagination about Black folks, about Latino folks, about Asian folks, other than as like widgets you might want to turn to win an election for these kind of generic progressive values that didn't actually interpret in lived outcomes for people like, you know, my cousin who was involved in the criminal justice system early or family who was born into poverty or uneducated or limiting options in whatever ways. And so I just, I mean, had a really basic, like, I know how this reality trickles down. And then also just like blinders off of seeing genius wherever it was. And so, you know, one of the things that happened pretty early when they gave me just a little bit of power (laughs) was that I started wanting to invest in people who looked nothing like the people we were already investing in. So we were already investing in very large organizations, almost all led by white folks, largely white men, all of whom doing race work, by the way, all of them. I want to note the air quotes there. Yes, (laughs) for sure, because you can't hear them, but they're there. All of whom were saying that they were doing racial equity work. And so I was hearing regularly, like, we invest in racial equity work. It's just done in these other organizations that happen to be run by white folks. And there was no real sense of irony there at all. So a lot of my radar was simply seeing the genius that was right in front of our faces. It wasn't that I had particular brilliance in finding stars. It was just that like, I saw the stars in a really different way than people who literally just didn't have experience meeting somebody like a James Rucker who founded Color of Change. You know, like when we met James Rucker from Color of Change, this is one of my favorite funder stories. He was largely self-funded. And, you know, what he had already done was immensely important. He had already organized thousands of people to get to Gina, Louisiana, you know, in that case of the kids in the Gina 6. And people were like, how did this happen? And one, he was organizing online, which in 2007 was really still the frontier. And two, he was like, you know, this Black guy who was like not connected to progressive circles, he didn't really want to like come to DC and New York and fundraise. He just wanted to do liberation work. But what he'd already done was so effective. And so I was plugged in because one, he was working on an issue that mattered to me. And two, when I met him, his genius was super obvious (laughs) to me. But when I brought him to the people I worked with, they were like, this is not a real organization. And the catch-22 of (laughs) he can only get as big as he can (laughs) self-fund was just, it was so obvious, like the, and the potential was so there, it was so clear. So for me, it's, you know, it was a really important story in the genesis of like why I've stayed where I am doing what I'm doing that, you know, ultimately we were successful getting kind of the umbrella organization of color of change into the democracy Alliance portfolio. And at the time, I think it was a $500,000 a year organization. It's now I think a 20 something million dollar a year organization. So it now would fit anybody's criteria, of a real organization. Yeah. The potential was never in doubt for anyone who was really looking. So I would say it's a matter of both lived experience and then just having radar that are tuned really differently to the issues that matter to my folks. Same thing with all my voting rights work, right? Like if voting rights is a theory to you, you'll do one set of things, which, you know, one of the things I saw was like, we wanted like people, white men with a lot of money wanted to invest in legislation in Washington, DC. And, you know, 
organizations led by other white men who were really smart <laughs> about the legal battles that needed to be mm-hmm, fought. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, what we were, what I was saying was you can't actually change anything if you don't organize people to know that this is their issue. And if you don't talk to the people who are most affected about how it affects them, campaign finance reform, same thing, climate change, same thing, that you get very ineffective policies if you don't see the communities that are actually meant to power the, the broad change that we need to see. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a something really powerful there and just this whole sense. And I think it speaks to just your skill as well and understanding one, having a sense of belonging in all rooms to some degree also means that you understand from an issue perspective, your sense of belonging in that issue as well. And those that are relevant to that conversation. I do want you to talk a little bit more about the Climate Funders Justice Pledge, right? Because I think that, you know, particularly the climate conversation is one that is just so divorced from... <laughs> effectiveness. Let's start there. <laughs> like just effectiveness. <laughs> I'm just constantly like, y'all couldn't find one black person to talk to in that conversation. Like y'all realize that black folks are on this earth too, right? Like, so there's just a disconnect between kind of climate justice conversation, the climate change conversation is just so pronounced it's admirable that your ability to find some sense of place and belonging, because yes, start with effectiveness and talk a little bit more about that whole work. Well, first, I want to say something about the sense of belonging, because this is very, very important to my career. And it's something that I really like to pass on to people. I don't usually find a sense of belonging in the most powerful rooms that I'm in. And therefore, it's been very important to me to know who my validators are. And they're not usually in those rooms. And so I can be comfortable in those rooms. I can go in with a strong sense of myself, but I don't get my validation in those rooms. And so it's been really important to me to know I care a lot what Darren Isom thinks of the work I'm doing because I respect him. We are trying to do the same thing. He sees the same things I do. And in other places, like I'm doing the work here and this person is probably not going to like me. And I make a lot of people uncomfortable. And, you know, like, again, like, I I think I come across warm, but you will find a lot of people who I've made uncomfortable. And I have to be comfortable with that because I'm in rooms that other people don't get to be in. And I feel like I have to take that very responsibly. Before you jump, I just want to make space for that, because I think that is a really powerful statement and one that we don't acknowledge. So many of us who work in this space, the fact that, you know, you enter rooms and you're there because you have to be there. You're, You're there representing the community. I joke all the time. I remember when I went on my first interview with a white company, back when I worked in the private sector, it happened. It was a thing. I don't know who scrubbed my Google, my Google profile, but I worked in the private sector. It doesn't show up. <laughs> it doesn't show up at all. Thank you, whoever that was. But I remember going in for an interview and my grandmother was coaching me from the phone, on the phone uh, before the interview made it. She's like, you have to walk into the place like you own it. Because if you don't act like you own that place, you'll never make it past the white gaze of the white uh, receptionist, literally. And so there's something to be said about how when I talk about belonging, like you, you're supposed to be there. Like literally, that's that's your job. That's what you went to school for. There are people outside of that room rooting for you and you have to represent them in that room. Right. But I love just reminding folks that you're not there to get any. You're not trying to be friends with these people. I mean, you don't need their validation. You have your validation from outside up. And that's the validation that's most important. And I think that, you know, we all have a role to play in this movement, right? And so I appreciate your just articulating that because I think that's a really powerful statement that matters so much. We can have a whole hour-long conversation just on that. But let me move on to the Climate Funders Justice Pledge. <laughs> yes, please. 
because we have limited time. So, you know, the Climate Funders Justice Pledge is a really good example of that. You know, we got to meet our amazing climate campaign director, Danielle Dean, and I got to meet with, I want to say, 37 of the top 40 climate funders. And that is a rare kind of access. And we were working with the decision makers, you know, the people who are making the biggest decisions about climate funding in the United States. And we were talking to them about racial equity. So I was doing this in my just immediate previous job as executive director of the Donors of Color Network. I can now call myself a retired ED. Congratulations. <laughs> Recovering for the moment. But, you know, because I was representing a cross-racial community of high net worth donors, they took our meetings and, you know, we got the access to have conversations about racial justice in their funding that most people just can't have. You know, they're just, in fact, when we were hiring PR firms to do this work, two, I can't remember if it was two or three, two or three different firms passed up working with us on this because they did not want to be on the wrong side of these funders. Wow. And, <laughs> and, you know, and I had to, and Danielle was constantly marveling at the fact that I was willing to alienate, for example, you know, the Ford Foundation or other folks who were actually very important to us and allies that we wanted to have. But if they were going to be alienated by us asking them hard questions, I wasn't going to not take advantage of being in the room. So, the climate movement, one, has been incredibly ineffective. And that's the starting point. The starting point for me isn't racial justice. It's that we all live on this planet and we have to save it. And the people who have been funding climate work have failed us. And they failed us by being blind to the power they needed to build from the most effective communities. And in not building that power, they failed to move the ball in all the ways they needed to move it. So, you know, what we asked for in this pledge was, you know, for each of these funders to commit to funding a floor of 30% of their resources to organizations led by <laughs> and accountable to communities of color. And the wild thing is all of the justifications people had for not doing it that they believed were tied to strategy. And like deep in their hearts, they believed that they it was tied to strategy. And so they would say like, you know, oh, we really applaud what we do. Nobody would ever disagree with what you're saying. Um, sort of like, oh, we really believe in what you're doing. But we're just about reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Like we're trying to win the carbon in the atmosphere battle. And I was like, how do you think you get the laws and the policy change you need if you don't have the public will? And how do you get the public will if you don't engage the part of the public that is the most affected, that's lived through Katrina, that's lived through Maria, that's had you know people drown in their neighborhoods, paper towel thrown at their faces? How do you win without those people? You can't win. You ain't got the votes. <laughs> you can't win. You ain't got the votes. So it's really having the conversations to help people, very smart people, I just want to be clear, really smart people who are missing a part of the puzzle because it's an invisible part to them. A lack of imagination about our communities. Again, and you just, without that lived experience and decision-making roles, it's very difficult. But I also want to shout out the many funders who did immediately get it and who led and took bold action. And there, there really were a number of them and who organized their peers. But they're just taking advantage of the position to actually have these hard conversations and then give people a metric of, Everyone has the rhetoric about racial justice, especially when we started this campaign in 2020. Everyone had the words. But we, like, here's what it looks like when it lands in a budget. And you can measure it and you can say, did we meet it or did we not? Yeah. Can we go back to this point? I mean, because you, you brought this up a few times and I think it's worth stopping and talking about for a little bit. A lack of imagination, right? And and I'm reminded of one, I, I may have shared this story with you at some point. My great-grandfather, 
yeah, my, my paternal grandmother's father was gay in the 30s in New Orleans, right? So he divorced his wife or separated from his wife. I don't know if they ever formed That's wild that you ever learned that. Oh, yeah. I, you, you know, New Orleans, you know all these stories. Like they just get passed down over coffee and cocktails casually. And he lived with his, his partner was Cuban-American. And they lived in New Orleans and then the French Quarter and the French Quarter in Marigny. And New Orleans being New Orleans, uh, you know, the family joke was that the, the brownest person at the table was the Cuban-American, right? Uh, this, the brownest person at this black table was the Cuban-American. I've never met either any of these people, but my grandmother would always bring up my, my great-grandpa, Carlo, because he would always say whenever there was some degree of doubt or some degree of insecurity, like, are we American? Isn't that what Americans do? Bold things. Right. Like start acting like an American. So it's like this immigrant reminding this table of black Americans to be like an American. Right. And that speaks to me, this idea of, you know, the power of imagination, the power of really being able to see a world that doesn't exist and being committed to that world. Right. That where did it go? When did folks <laughs> like when did folks stop dreaming? And so I think there's something to be said about an imagination from both a destination point but also just imagination and people being able to unable to understand their countrymen in a way that doesn't fit this narrow narrative that they have of those folks in their roles and, and, and their cultures. And so I, I'm, I'm really, there's something to be said about, you know, proximity gives you a sense of imagination because you've seen all these different things. But I would love just from a story perspective for you to share as you think about the role of imagination in driving doable Solution. So the role of imagination and really driving us from a work perspective and an outcomes perspective. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that. I love this question. I have so many thoughts. One of them is I used to go to spoken word events at the Starry Plow in Berkeley. And I once was with a friend and during a break in the spoken word, and he was outside talking to an unhoused man who was talking about the street we were on and what he saw on the street. And what he said was, everything you see right now, somebody imagined it before it was built. The light post, the street sign, the building, this window. And my friend was just sort of like on a smoke break, you know, like kind of just like listening to the sky. And I just was like, it just struck me as the truest thing I'd ever heard, you know, that like everything had to be imagined before it existed for the most part, unless God made it happen himself or herself. So it's really stayed with me. And I think about it from both the strategy and a spirit perspective from the perspective of the country like we are in i think this adrian marie brown maybe is the person who says this like we're in a a battle for the imagination of this country and i like i really do believe it's a battle of imagination like it is there are people who can only imagine it the way it has been this deeply colonized <laughs> deeply unequal deeply divisive way that the country has been that's benefited one group of people over another. And there's a fear, a terror, really, of like people losing their privilege and of it being a different way. And, you know, to some extent, we're getting very predictable results. And I think on the other side, we haven't painted the picture of how beautiful it really could be on the other side. And that, you know, there really is, there's a win-win all around in a society in which we have more justice. And I think that the thing that gets us there is actually seeing it or being able to describe it to one another. And one of the things that makes me the saddest is that like, if you read science fiction, it is so many iterations on the apocalypse. Like we can iterate on the apocalypse, especially now as we face climate catastrophe, we get better and better at iterating on the apocalypse. And 
why don't we iterate on what it looks like to save ourselves and on the beauty <laughs> that could come with that? So for me, it's like you win policy battles both by having imagination about all the communities that you need to have, which means you actually need to have that lived experience in the room. Do not think there is any shortcut to that. You need people who have imagination about all of us <laughs> and how we all are a part of it. But I also think we need like this imagined future in which like we win together and we have to tell that story in a really different way. And that's not soft. Like I was a scientist before I was anything else. And like, I think I still think with a very scientific mind. To me, it's science. Like if you study social change, if you study political change, somebody painted the picture of the reality, like manifest destiny. That was somebody's imagination and we live in it. So like, what is the alternative to that? Yes, 100%. And I was thinking about one, this idea of this imagination that we're living in someone's imagination, right? And so as the person noted, and so there's a wonderful exercise if, if you ever do it is to think about who's the oldest person you know, right? Or ever knew growing up and how different your life story is from that person, right? And for me, it would be my, like my great aunt Ella was like born in 1890. She was my Sunday school teacher growing up. And I can only imagine, like this is a woman who literally, when she was a child, I'm sure most adults around her were not just born into slavery, but were actual adults when slavery ended, right? And here's this little, you know, free black kid going to school with white people asking, really, Jonah was in a whale for three days, aunt Ella? <laughs> really? That was a thing. Come on now, let's, you know, let's talk about that for a second. I don't really believe that story. I actually really, I can imagine it. Listen, and this is a side conversation. This is where I'm thankful for. I, I joke all the time about my liberatory black religion, black liberation ideology. And my aunt Ella looked at me and said, you know, the Bible is a book of, of parables. What does it mean to be in darkness for three days? And so that made, I, I didn't know that, I didn't know liberalism was a thing until I went to college. I was like, wait, y'all actually believe in that literally ha happened? Oh, wow. Like now I understand why people are a little <laughs> confused. But I do think there is something to be said about if, we're living in a world that she imagined to some degree. Like, what are we creating for those that are coming after us? What are we imagining now that others will live in? What good things that we're imagining? Because we're imagining a lot of bad things. We're imagining all the bad things. All the bad things. And these poor, like, Gen Z kids who, like, have nothing but, like, post-apocalyptic fiction <laughs> to, like, imagine to, their futures and to live in yeah. right no i mean that's powerful as well and i think there is something to be said one of my favorite octavia butler quotes which i may have quoted several times before with you is there's nothing new under the sun but there are new suns i think that in science fiction world that means you have to go out and find new suns and i think that there's ways that we can just we can just throw some new suns up there right how do you cast new suns to live under and that's the power of imagination oh, oh can i respond to that yes I actually have please. A go ahead yes you go know ahead, this ahead. is you know, what you is respond? a joy? <laughs> Girl, this is your, this is your, what are you talking about? Yes. One of the joys of my career, it's been a hard career in a lot of ways, but like one of the great joys has been that mostly I've got been able to build new models. And so I've rarely had a job that anyone had before me. And, you know, generally what I get to do is like come in and build something that didn't exist before. And the Donors of Color Network, I would say, is my proudest of these things. And it feels like a new sun, you know, like that, you know, philanthropy looked a certain way when I got here 15 years ago. And I spent a lot of my career trying to reform it <laughs> from inside. And I'm proud of the things that I built along the way, like the Youth Engagement Fund and, you know, New Media Ventures. Like these are projects that are about moving money to in like ways that build equity and in ways that build asymmetrical advantage. And those are institutions inside of traditional philanthropy. But I think at some point, like pairing with Urvashi Vad, who I know you've also interviewed, you know, Urvashi, this was Urvashi's imagination to say like there could be a cross-racial community 
of high net worth donors leveraging their power together. And that looks completely different than anything that existed. Many very powerful people told us they did not believe we could do this. And, you know, I remember actually a Black man, a very powerful foundation leader who was a Black man, said to Irvishi and I, while sitting in his office, what is there in your research that makes you believe there could be a cross-racial donor network? And we were like, well, there's nothing in the research because it hasn't been done. But we believe this is what needs to exist. And so we're going to build it. And, you know, we have, I'm super proud of it. (laughs) And thank you for your support of it, Darren. But I think it looks like saying, like, there's no path here, but there is a new thing to build and believing in that. And it's a joy, you know, this community, although, you know, just left as executive director, but like the community that exists here is based in joy. It's based in beauty. It's based in an asset-based approach to communities of color. You know, like if you look at the look and feel of donors of color, it's colorful, it's vibrant. Our conferences are full of music and great food and people connecting in really in strong ways. Our tagline is joy, power, and community. And so for me, this is like my strongest example of like what it looks like to say, like, I'm not, not happy with what's here. But I see this new possibility. I'm going to find my people, you know, in this case, the Irvishis and the, you know, the earlier folks or Irvishi found me. You got to find your squad. You got to find your squad. Find your people. And like, you, they're really like, I, I do believe in this example of like, we can build something very different than what we've seen. Oh, completely. And I do think there's something to be said as well about the need to be able to see something that hasn't been there before. And I'm, I'm reminded, I'm sorry, I'm just feeling, I'm just feeling Octavia Butler today. Another wonderful quote of hers is uh, she was asked, why aren't there more San Francisco Black writers? And she responded, because there aren't. What we don't see, we assume can't be. What a destructive assumption. And <laughs> I think there's something to be said about seeing just because something doesn't exist, doesn't mean it can't happen. <laughs> and, and so I think that but that's, I mean, to me, in some ways, that's Black radicalism, being able to envision something, knowing that it doesn't exist, but knowing that it can happen despite what others say, right? And that's something that I think you bring to the table in a powerful way that I really appreciate. Oh, thank you, Darren. You were, what you're about to say? You're about to jump in. I was thinking about this concept of sort of the, if you're born into a world that doesn't fit you, it's because you were made to build a new world. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who that was. And I was like, I, st- I stopped myself because I was like, oh, it's kind of a cliche, but it's not a cliche to everyone. <laughs> and, you know, I really do believe that there's a reason that like the movement for Black Lives led by not just Black women, but queer Black women. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, because nothing in the, in the identity that these people have fits the world as it exists. And if they get free, everyone is free. Like, it's really true. And so it is like kind of one of the joys of being Black or, you know, like having any marginalized identity is that I do think it frees your imagination in a way because you're very unattached (laughs) to what is there and it makes you dream about what else could be. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said, I see all the time about there's something to be said about when you're not really comfortable anywhere, you're comfortable everywhere. Right. And so you have to be able to create that sense of belonging, that sense of space. I mean, you mentioned uh, Adrian Marie Brown earlier. Uh, one of her quotes that's really been on my mind more recently as we're living through. We're living through a moment right now. I don't know. <laughs> we're going to look up and realize what a moment we were living through. But she wrote, I think it is healing behavior to look at something so broken and see the possibility and wholeness in it. And for me, that's it's a way of turning our chaotic moment on its head. And seeing it as a, as a way of finding healing and finding That's wholeness. Beautiful. And so that one is what I'm reading to myself every morning as I start today, because the world's a mess for real. But that's why we're here. 
That's really beautiful. I, if you can believe it, I was actually just listening to Adrian's podcast an hour ago. And specifically, it was an interview between her and her sister. And someone asked her sister, what do people not know about Adrian that you wish they, that they knew? And she said, it is how she truly lives in awe and wonder and silliness. And I just like, even I know Adrian, she's a friend, you know, she's stayed with me in my house. And I like, I hadn't really thought about her that way, you know, even, and it is like, you know, she built a podcast called How to Survive the End of the World, because <laughs> she really believes like, like this mean, is where we're headed. And listen. she is, <laughs> it's actually something we argue about, like this, this whole thing about iterating on the apocalypse. So I'm always like, Adrian, really, could you like imagine that we save ourselves? And she's like, yeah, I really don't see that. <laughs> I don't see it. And, you know, so her work really is about like, okay, how do we survive this? What's on the other side of it? And yeah, and then to hold all of that with silliness and awe and all the other things that like she humanly feels. But it was really nice to have her sister say like, that's the headline for her of this woman who like thinks about the end of the world. Yeah, well, I think that ultimately, ultimately, the silliness and the awe is the container for all of that, right? It's the best container for all of it. The best container. So well, we are well over our time. This has been wonderful. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for the time. And I wish you all the best as you continue to do amazing things, as you continue to be to be what we need right now. And I offer you just a space for healing. Thank you, Darren. Okay. Talk soon. Bye. My maternal grandmother, Lucinda, had the distinction of being my only grandparent who was not from New Orleans, a distinction that was a very important one for me as a child growing up there. When I was much younger, I thought of her as being from northern Louisiana or somewhere in that vastness that was the world across the lake, as New Orleans described anything outside of the city, be it Marrero or Marrakesh. It wasn't until high school that I bothered to look at a map and realized that faraway place was just two parishes over and actually further south than New Orleans. On occasion, we'd escaped the city to her hometown in Lafourche Parish, the country as we called it, and spend the day visiting her sisters who still lived there in small houses that set across from sugarcane fields. My Auntie Dorothy's house was my favorite. The youngest of the three daughters, Monty Dorothy, was dark with a head of cotton candy-like white hair that she pulled back in a big messy bun that she would undo and redo over and over as she sat and laughed with my grandma. They would sit and enjoy coffee and whatever sweets Auntie Dorothy had on hand, and there were always ample sweets on hand a true bounty of homemade cakes and cookies and candies. Mighty Dorothy was also a quilter, and on some Saturdays we'd catch her in the middle of a quilting session, cutting and piecing together the various scraps of fabric she'd collected over a lifetime. She'd show us the quilt's design, meticulously sketched out on a sheet of paper, and after my grandmother would tell her how beautiful the design was, Auntie Dorothy would warn her, well, that's the design, dear, but you know it's going to change once I get to start putting it together. And sure enough, when we returned some months later, the piece was always different from the design as she was inspired by an extremely bold print that just had to be brought into the mix, or she came across some scraps of a print that was so beautiful that it needed to be celebrated. Despite the changes, the actual quilt was always far more beautiful than the quilt she'd initially designed. My conversation with the Shindy reminded me of the brilliantly talented quilters that exist in the social sector, who so skillfully and patiently piece together our often disparate narratives into a solid and compelling liberation story that is more balanced and beautiful than anything we could have ever imagined. I'm reminded of the King quote, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structural reality. 
a single garment of destiny that's ours to shape. Y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a British band supported Studio Pod Media production. A special shout out to our show producer, the wonderful Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge thank you to my ever brilliant British band production team and family Cora Daniels, Michael Borger, Christina Pistorius, and Britt Savage. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.